I just want to say thank you for the opportunity. I'm, I'm just thrilled that I'm allowed to share, and it's a privilege for me. So um, I want to get right into it. We, we don't have a lot of time. We just get this half hour on Sunday morning, so let's get as much as we can into this half hour. And I tend to speak very quickly, so you'll need to listen faster. So if you would do that for me, I'd appreciate it. So we start 3,400 years ago. 3,400 years ago, the people of Israel had been in Egypt for hundreds of years, had grown to a million men plus their families, and God had miraculously given them an escape. They were fleeing Egypt by God's mighty hand. And as they're fleeing, the people complained. And God said, okay, that's enough. We're going to wait. Now, this was the longest flight delay ever. But after 40 years, God said, okay, now, now Joshua's going to take you into the promised land. And they start their way north up around to the, the east a bit, and they're heading up to the promised land. And to get there, they have to go through Moab. But when they get to the border, there are the Moabites saying, no way, you're not coming through our land. And they pleaded with them. They said, we won't take anything. We won't rob you. We'll, we'll give you, you know, take as little as we can. Just let us through. And they said, nope, you're not going this way. So they had to go all the way around further to the east and up and around and back to the... And basically, they didn't like the Moabites. So much so that they decided that anyone that married a Moabite would be in deep trouble. They'd be expelled from the, the people of Israel. The Moabites were just nasty, nasty people. We don't want anything to do with them. Nobody marries them. And then our story goes on for a couple hundred years, and we find that there's this unusual situation, and a godly Israelite man ends up marrying a Moabite. It's like, oh, how did this happen? If you want to know, read the book of Ruth. That's what it's all about. But this guy Boaz and his wife Ruth, they get together, she's a Moabite, and they have a child. And that child has a child. His name is Jesse. And Jesse is, um, in the Bible, we, we see about him, but what I want to do is take you into what's called the Talmud. This is some material to the side that helps us understand the Bible a little better. It's not authoritative like the Bible. Some of it may be made up. We're not sure what's exactly historically accurate and what isn't, but I think it gives us a little insight. And what this story tells us is that Jesse read about this thing that you're not to marry a Moabite, and he said, well, my grandfather did. That makes me kind of a Moabite, and I'm defiling this good Israelite woman. And he says, I can't do this anymore. This is after they had seven sons. And he says, okay, that's it. I'm not going to have marital relationships with her anymore. We're done. That's just not going to happen. The problem is he didn't talk to his wife about it. So Nitz, Nitziva, which is an odd name for us, um, she didn't care for this. One day, Jesse goes into town, and Nitziva had read her Old Testament, went, hey, I know what to do. She dressed up as a prostitute, went into town, met Jesse, and got herself pregnant. Jesse never knew it was her. Until months later, she's obviously pregnant. He's going, she must have cheated on me. But he's an honorable man. He keeps her, and she eventually gives birth to her child. She has a son. His name is David. You may have heard of David before. That's how he was born. So what we see is that there's a little bit of question about what is, is David's birth heritage? How was he accepted? Now, why I want you to know this is that if we go into uh, 1 Samuel, where we'll read from a second, this kind of helps fill in some blanks for us. And it's interesting because it does say that David had a ruddy appearance means he was kind of red. I'm going, is, was he a redhead like that guy in Mad Magazine? 
Did, did he stand out from his brothers that much? His brothers are all you know, dark Israel guys, and he's got red hair and freckles. Who knows? But it implies he looks different than his brothers, the way it's, it's put out there. So let's read from First Samuel. The Lord said to Samuel, Now how long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Saul had just disobeyed the Lord, and God said he's not king anymore. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Well, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees, but looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. I think Samuel's perplexed, because here are all seven of Jesse's sons. The Lord said, You're going to anoint one of his sons. And they all pass before him, and none of them are the one that the Lord wants. So then Samuel says to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, yeah, there remains the youngest, um, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to, G to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome, unlike his brothers. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David, and from that day forward... So, this is the story. This is where David is anointed king. Now, what's interesting is Saul has failed as king because he disobeyed. He was told to wait for Samuel to make a sacrifice. People were getting unruly, and he went ahead and did the sacrifice himself. So God said, if you can't obey me in a little thing like that, we're done. You will not be king of Israel. He was still functioning as king, but God had basically cut him off, and he said, I'm going to anoint someone else as king. And this is how God did it, by sending Samuel to the house of Jesse. Now what's interesting is Jesse brings his sons. Samuel says, bring your sons, consecrate them. We're going to have this sacrifice together. So who does Jesse bring? He brings his seven legitimate sons in his eyes. Where's David? He's out tending the sheep. Do you know what people thought of shepherds in that time? You know, when, when their descendants, when their ancestors, Jacob and you know, his sons went to Egypt... They went to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said, nice to meet you, but we don't want you living around here. We, we detest shepherds. You have to go live over in this good land, but not near us. Shepherds were the lowest of the low. They were the scum. And where is David working? Jesse takes his youngest son, who he's not sure is really his, and has him taking care of the sheep. 
a job usually reserved for a servant, one of their servants. And that's where David is. And they have to call him in to come before Samuel before he's actually anointed. And why is that? Because God doesn't look at how tall you are, how smart you are, how clever you are, how good you are at making jokes and things. God looks at our hearts. And he looked at the seven brothers' hearts and he knew they weren't where they needed to be for them to be the anointed, the next king of Israel. But God knew David's heart and he waited for David. So it's, it's interesting that as we read through this, in the version we read, it says, have you not, no other sons? But actually, if you look at the Hebrew word, the word for sons is used dozens and dozens of times in Samuel, 2 Samuel, through the whole Old Testament. It's the same word every time. But here it's a different word. It's a slightly different word. It means a young boy. I love the version. It says, have you any lads? It sounds like Samuel, or, uh, Samuel is uh, Irish or, or Scottish or something. But have you any lads? Have you any other boys? He doesn't use the word sons. And Jesse goes, well, you've seen my seven sons, but yeah, there is this other boy. And he brings in David. And David, the one that's been rejected by his family, is the one that God has chosen. And I can just imagine what those seven brothers felt when they're going, okay, it wasn't me, it wasn't me, you know, none of us. And then he brings in David, and David is the one that God has chosen. The one that they've rejected, the one they hate, the one they make fun of, the little runt, is the one that God has chosen. And what went through those brothers' hearts? And what's interesting is that often we are put in a place where we're not appreciated, we're not respected. God still sees our heart. And as long as we are being good, as long as we are being faithful, God sees that, he appreciates it, he remembers it, he does not forget us. Now we think about David, and David, as he grew as king, before he became king, he was writing songs, psalms we call them, and they're found in the book of Psalms. And if David had written a book about how to raise your children, I would recommend you not buy it, because he had some problems. But he did write this book of Psalms, which are these songs where he just poured out his heart to the Lord. And it's interesting because he didn't pray nice little prayers. He kind of yelled at God sometimes when he was frustrated. He let God know how he was feeling. And that's how our prayers need to be. But listen to some of these words that David writes. They're, they're called laments. Oh God, why have you rejected us so long? Why is your anger so intense against the sheep of your own pasture? Do you ever feel like God's angry with you? I think a lot of us felt that at some time or another. Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there's no water. Feeling that there's just dryness here. You, you pray and your prayers bounce off the ceiling. God, where are you? I search for you. I long you, but I can't find you. God, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. God, malicious witnesses are testifying against me. They accuse me of crimes I have not, know nothing about. They repay me evil for good. I'm sick with despair. Sounds like some of my coworkers. <laughs> you know, you, you're trying to do your job and people get in your way. It's like some of them are actually trying to undo what you did and you get frustrated and angry. God, why are you allowing this? Why are these evil people having any weight over me when you're the God? This shouldn't be a problem. You should be working these things out. Oh, Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my heart, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemies have the upper hand? 
God, this has been going on so long. And you think of David and the years he waited before he was finally made king after being anointed. And all he went through was Saul being after him, trying to kill him. And fleeing from Saul's presence because he was afraid of his life. And David is going, my God, I cry out during the day, but you do not answer. And during the night, my prayers do not let up. David is praying to God constantly saying, God, this is not fun. I am not enjoying this experience of running from Saul, of having to serve him initially and then him turning on me and running and hiding, having to go to our enemies for asylum. It's just, God, I don't understand what you're doing, why you're allowing this. And I think we all have doubts in our mind. God, why are you allowing these things to happen? Why is life so hard right now? And yet we need to stop and trust God. We need to realize that God is in control. He has not forgotten us. He is holding on to us. He's working inside us things that we may never know. But through the Bible, we see these stories of people that have been taken through their trials, that have seen God work in their lives. And what's interesting is, as I look at this, I go, David and Jesus are both kings. And the parallels between David and and, and Jesus are just so amazing. They're so strong. And I just want to walk you through some of those parallels. First of all, did you notice where Samuel went to meet Jesse? He went to a little town you may have heard of called Bethlehem. David was born in Bethlehem. Who else was born in Bethlehem? Jesus. Both from the same place. Not a big town. It's not like they were both from New York. They were both from Bethlehem, a little town. They were both considered illegitimate children. Jesse's going, I don't know how she got pregnant. I don't know that this is my child. Joseph comes home to Mary one day and goes, she's pregnant. I don't think it's my child. The townspeople going, this is odd. So Jesus was questionable what his birthright was. Both have tensions with their families. Obviously, David's brothers don't like him. If you watch how they talk to him in other scriptures, they are not fans of David. And Jesus' brothers at one point are are coming after him saying, let's take Get him out of here. He's making a fool of himself. I think he's gone crazy. So neither of them had real strong relationships with their brothers. They both had issues with their father. Obviously, Jesse was not a great father to David. And Jesus, while Joseph probably was a great father, we know he had died by the time Jesus started his ministry at age 30, and hopefully a few years before that. I don't think Joseph died and Jesus said, well, Mom, I'm going to go too now. He probably stuck around and took care of Mary for a few years, got her on her feet, and then started his ministry. So they both had a father that was either not there or gone at an early age. Uh, They both were announced as the king while the present king was still ruling. Doesn't happen often. You think of uh, in England, we had to wait for a queen, uh, whatever, Elizabeth, to, to die finally at, you know, a thousand years old before. Yeah. This didn't happen. They were both announced as king while the king was still in his, his place. So we've got this thing with the king, and then both of them are threatened by the king. Saul throws a spear at David at least once, a couple times, and he, he's got a plot. He's going to kill David. And what happens with Jesus when he's brand new, newly born, the Magi come at some point, say we're looking for the king, Herod the king hears about it, and sends his soldiers to the town where they thought Jesus was and killed everyone under two. His parents have been warned in a dream to flee, so Jesus survived. But here we are, two men, and the kings that are in power are both trying to kill them because they're afraid of them. They were both uh, shepherds. David was a shepherd out caring for sheep, Jesus is the good shepherd. And he actually says, I'm the shepherd, the good one. 
making himself known that he's the one that cares for his people. He cares for us as sheep. They both had great wisdom. Here we are 3,000 years after, after David, and we're still reading the Psalms. We're still going to it daily. I mean, millions and millions of people around the world are reading what David wrote thousands of years later. And Jesus, his words recorded in the gospel continue to be read thousands of years later. So they both have great wisdom that were recorded and continue to be referred to today. Then they were both betrayed. David was betrayed by his closest advisor. He had his, you know, his cabinet. And when his son said, hey, I'm sick of my dad being king, I'm going to take over, his, one of his favorite cabinet members went over to his son's side and was plotting how they're going to overturn David. David was just torn up by this. It was a terrible thing to have happen. Your closest advisor, your closest friend is trying to figure out how to get you not be king anymore. And then we all understand with Jesus that last night, how many guys stuck with him out of the 12? I'll never leave you. And they all abandoned him. But what was worse, one of them actually is the one, Judas, that went and turned him in and said, here's where you can find him. Give me some money. I'll, I'll make this happen. So they were both rejected. They were both betrayed by people that they worked with, that they trusted. And then they both experienced abandonment issues. David feels very abandoned. He writes Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And Jesus, when he's on the cross at that moment when he's dying, quotes David's words exactly, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They both have that abandonment problem that they have to suffer and go through. But what's interesting between the two of them, God makes a very specific promise, a covenant. He makes it to David, and what he says is, I will raise up one of your descendants, David, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He makes this promise to David, and if you look at David, his sons and grandsons, his descendants, remain kings for hundreds of years. And then Israel kind of falls apart. But then Jesus is born. And Jesus is the king that was promised to David. His kingdom will never end. So we see those strong parallels between David and Jesus. And I think the reason God does that is so that as we read about David's life, we go, that reminds me of Jesus. That's looking forward to Jesus. That's helping us understand Jesus. So it's always pointing forward to Jesus so we understand Jesus wasn't good, just a good teacher. He wasn't a good man. Jesus is the one that God has been pointing forward to for hundreds and thousands of years. He is the Messiah. He is the one that we've been waiting for. There can be no doubt because God has put all these clues in the Old Testament. And as we read it, we go, he's the one. That confirms it. Look at this. That confirms it. Jesus has to be the Messiah. There's no other explanation. Now, what's interesting is the Bible is chock full of stories about people whose hearts were attacked. You think about David. It's like it hurt his heart, some of the things he went through. When you think about Jesus, his heart hurt I mean, he weeps at Lazarus' grave. He's just heart-stricken. And we have all these other stories of people that, whose hearts have been attacked in the scriptures. We think of Hannah, who was Samuel's mother. She was barren. She couldn't have children. In that culture, to not be able to bear a child, you were looked down upon. There's something wrong with you. Obviously, if you can't have a child, God must think there's something wrong with you. Otherwise, you'd have kids. And if you didn't have a child, you didn't have Social Security. That's your retirement plan. Hannah went to the temple and prayed. And she's lying on the temple steps, just pouring her heart out to God. And the priest of the temple, Eli, comes up to her and says, get up, you drunk. <laughs> she sets him straight. And he eventually 
prays for Hannah. And that's when Hannah conceives Samuel is shortly after that. And Samuel, obviously, is a big part of the story. He's one of the best prophets from the Old Testament we know. And then we think about Saul. Saul was made king. He's ruling Israel. He's taller than everyone. He looks good, kind of like the guys that were rejected of David's sons. And he's ruling, and he's doing fine, but then he's told to wait for Samuel to come to offer the sacrifice. He's told to wait, he's told to wait, and he finally just, the pressure of the people, he gives in, and he fails. He has his heart attacked, but he doesn't follow God. He gives in to his own desires, and he fails. We need to avoid being like Saul. Samuel, he had anointed Saul king. He was all behind Saul. He was doing everything he could make do to make Saul successful. And then Saul goes and does something stupid and disobeys. And Samuel's heart is just broken that this king that God had anointed, that God had put in place, blew it. And, and Samuel's falling to pieces. And that's when God calls Samuel and says, go anoint David. This will be the king, the man after my own heart. And then way back, Abraham and Sarah, God says, a great nation will come from you. And Abram goes, old man like me, I don't have any kids. How is a great nation going to come out of me? And then 10 years later, he comes back again and says, a great nation is going to come out of you. There are going to be more people than you can count the stars in the sky. And Sarah overhears it and she laughs. And Abraham laughs. And yet she gets pregnant at the age of 90. <laughs> Abraham's 100 when, when Isaac is born. And Isaac, interestingly, is the Hebrew word for laughter. <laughs> you laughed? Okay, your son is laughter. And I'm sure he provided great laughter for them. But God made them go through this, what are you doing, God? I'm too old to have children. Their hearts were stricken. Then Joseph, son of Israel, sold into slavery by his, his own brothers. Once again, he's the youngest, he's not liked. They sell him into slavery, basically to his cousins. His cousins take him down to Egypt and sell him to slavery there. And he's serving in this house, and the woman is attracted to him, comes on to him, he rejects her. He says, she, he tried to rape me, and he gets thrown in prison. He's being a good man, he's obeying the law, and he's in prison. He finally has a couple guys that say, hey, we had this dream, can you interpret? He interprets their dream, and he says, but remember me when you get out to the baker who, who's saved. And the baker is saved, he's just thrilled about it, he completely forgets about Joseph. And Joseph's rotting in prison for no reason, and he's just heartbroken, he's heartstricken. What did I do, how can I get out of here? And then one day, Pharaoh has a dream, and he goes, I don't understand this dream, none of my advisors can explain it to me. And the baker goes, yeah, I forgot. <laughs> There's this guy that you've got locked up. He knows how to interpret dreams. Joseph is pulled before Pharaoh from the prison. He's allowed to shave and clean up a little first. And he explains the dream to Joseph. There's going to be seven years of great harvest, seven years of famine. And if we don't do something, everyone's going to die in the famine. And Joseph says, this man has wisdom. He's got a plan. He makes him second in command to himself. So Joseph is taken from prison to being vice president in our terms. It's amazing how God works in these heartbroken people. Then there's the other Joseph. Here he is, he's engaged to this beautiful Israelite woman, he's, he's happy, and then he notices one day a little bulge, and he goes, something's not right here. And he decides to divorce her and says, I, 
you know, the law says we can stone her. I don't know if we can do that under the Roman law, but I, I can't go through and, and marry this woman. I don't know who she slept with. This is terrible. And then God, as he's suffering with what do I do about Mary, an angel appears to Joseph and says, no, this is something I've got planned. I know it's hard, but put aside your heartbreak. Marry this woman. She's been faithful to you. So once again, in the midst of Joseph's heartbreak, God intervenes and says, it's going to be good. And then we look at Jesus. I mean, his heart was broken at Lazarus' death. His own people rejected him. He goes to his hometown and they want to kill him. The crowds leave him. He gives this great sermon and everyone leaves. It's like, gee, thanks guys. <laughs> He's got his disciples left. He's like, are you guys going to leave too? And fortunately, they stick with him. Um, he's betrayed by one of his own inner circle. And then his own father, the night that he was betrayed, he's praying and saying, God, is there any other way? God, this is going to be so difficult. I don't want to go through this pain, this agony. But Lord, if it's your will, I will. Jesus' heart was broken praying for his own life, praying that if there's any other way we can do this, please can we make it hap happen differently. But unlike Saul, Jesus remained faithful. God said, this is the only way, and Jesus said, your will be done. He went forward. Jesus was the only answer for our heartbreak. Jesus was the only way for us to be healed to know that God is with us, God is for us. He has not abandoned us. And for him to do that, he had to be crucified. He had to be beaten, cursed, mocked, spat on, crucified, and died. That was the only way for you and I to be made right with God. And he allowed this to happen to himself. But then when he's on the cross... <clears throat> Well, that was fun. <laughs> While he was on the cross, he's suffering agony. They put the nails through his wrist. It goes right through the nerve in your wrist, and the pain shoots all the way up into your shoulder. And he's hanging there, and to breathe, you have to lift yourself up, which is just agony with the wounds on his back to rub on that wooden cross. It's agony. But that was Nothing. That was nothing compared to the agony he went through right at the moment of his death when God the Father said, Jesus, you are now carrying the death of these billions of sinful people. You are carrying the curse of their sin. You <clears throat> are no longer acceptable to me because you are bearing their sin. And for the first time, the last time, the only time through all eternity, the Father turned his back on the Son. And Jesus, the Son, was abandoned by the Father because of our sin. That was the agony of the cross that Jesus prayed that he could avoid. The nails, I'll take the nails, I'll take the spear on the side, but God, you're going to turn, Father, you're going to turn your back on me. How can I handle that? And yet he did it on our behalf. Now what I, I realize is that God accomplished his greatest work precisely when, God, when Jesus felt most abandoned by God. God accomplished his greatest work precisely when Jesus felt the most 
abandoned by God. What we need to realize is that God does not allow us to suffer for no reason. There's always a purpose there. Those sufferings, those trials have a purpose. Jesus' ultimate suffering had the purpose of bringing millions of people into the kingdom, making them right with God. But when you and I suffer, we are to consider it pure joy when we face trials because God is working in us to conform our character to him, to make us more like him, to take those rough edges off of us, to work through us that we might expand his kingdom. Joseph sums it up so well when he's before his brothers. His brothers are now afraid when Joseph has brought them all to Egypt. And Jacob dies, and they're all like, oh, now that dad's gone, Joseph's going to kill us all. He's got no reason to be nice to us. And, and Joseph weeps that his brothers would even think this of him. But what he says to them, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. God worked in Joseph's life. He allowed those difficult things to happen so that he could save the lives of many. And God may be working in your life so that you also can save the lives of many, so that you can influence and make a difference in their lives to save them as well. God uses our most painful experiences to glorify himself. When we suffer, we're being prepared to attend to others who are suffering. The difference is that after our testing, we will no longer look down upon people with pity, but we'll sit alongside them as fellow sufferers. It's not a condescending type pity. It's we're right beside you because we've been right where you are. We know what it's like. We would not be prepared to help them had we ourselves not suffered. So we need to realize when we feel abandoned by God, he may be doing great work in us to build our character and draw us closer to him. So what we need to do is remember, God is faithful. He does not give us up on us. He does not forget us. And David even wrote that in Psalms. Even though my mother and my father may abandon me, God, you will never forget me. But when we've reached our rope's end, when we're at the bottom of the barrel, we're probably right where God wants us to be. Because when we are weak, he is strong. When we've exhausted our resources, he has every resource available to him, and he can then pour into us and make a difference in the world around us. You intended harm to me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many. God has brought you to that position so that he could be working through you. Because of heartbroken men and women, the nation of Israel exists. Because of heartbroken men and women, Jesus was born. Because of heartbroken men and women, the church exists and continues to thrive through the world. It takes heartbreak to accomplish difficult world work in a fallen evil world. So what heart attacks has God allowed in your life? What's, what has he been teaching you? What is he trying to change in you? Remember, God has allowed it for the good. We have knowledge of the work of Christ that these Old Testament saints didn't have. They didn't understand the whole story like we do looking back at what Christ has done. We know we have victory in Christ. We know he is working for our good. We trust that he's doing whatever he needs to to make us more and more like him. And that is why this, the hymn writer could sing, It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul.
wrestled. We can sing that knowing full well that God will honor those words. He is faithful to us. How will you bless others through what God has taught you through your heartbreak? Let me pray for you from the scriptures. This is from Ephesians, Colossians, and 1 Thessalonians. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you spiritual wisdom and revelation in your growing knowledge of him, since the eyes of your heart have been enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the incomparable greatness of his power toward us who believe as displayed in the exercise of his, his, his immense strength. We also pray that you will be strengthened with all of his glorious power so you will have all the endurance and patience you need. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. Now may the God of peace himself make you completely holy and may your spirit and soul and body be kept entirely blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.